This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. New gene editing technologies are expanding the ease and power with which scientists can manipulate biological systems with the promise of addressing not only human health issues, but problems the planet faces with regards to food, fuel, and the environment. But while much of the concerns raised about the potential consequences of this technology have focused on its use in humans, Elizabeth Alter, assistant professor of biology at City University of New York's York College, argues its potential environmental implications will likely be far more significant. We spoke to Alter about her recent op-ed in the New York Times, the need for public discussion about the technology, and what should be done today as we work through broader questions of policy. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. In an op-ed in the New York Times this week, you raised the need to consider regulation for the use of new gene editing technologies. While there's been some outcry over the use of these technologies in humans, little attention is focused on their potential environmental implications, which you argue will likely be far more significant. Perhaps we can begin with the technologies themselves, like Casper Cas9. Can you give listeners a sense of the type of technological advances you're referring to, and, and how have they changed our ability to manipulate biology? Sure, yeah. So so our ability to edit DNA or genomes is several decades old at this point, um, but the revolution that CRISPR-Cas9 has brought really comes from the uh, ease of use and its um, cheapness compared to earlier technologies, as well as the fact that it is... Um, seems to be um, quite amenable to just about every uh, animal, plant, and fungus that it's been tried in. Um, it seems to work well across a, a really broad array of life um, and, uh, again, is you know, quite cheap. So it means that uh, whereas in the past these, these gene editing technologies had been limited to you know, a small number of um, labs and corporations, uh, now it's really a much more accessible technology that anyone with basic molecular biology tools can um, can attempt. Um, so, just as you were saying, you know, most of the attention on CRISPR-Cas9 has focused on um, the potential for editing the human genome and um, the ethical dilemmas that that raises. Uh, and then there's just been a lot less conversation about um, the potential for editing. Other organisms, you know, with with uh, with all good intentions for modifying ecosystems or assisting organisms, you know, in evolving for conditions that they uh, can adapt to on their own. But of course, these, um, you know, that sort of editing raises 
uh, a lot of ethical and um, ecological questions as well. Well, the, the technology is very promising in, in part as we're moving to a time when gene therapy is becoming a reality. This is seen as a way to cure genetic-based diseases. There's also concern, though, that it may be used not to treat just illness, but alter characteristics of people and, and open the door to such things as designer babies. Is, is this science fiction or, or reality? Well, the so the um, we're getting closer and closer to uh, the possibility of it being a reality. Um, while editing something as complex as the human genome um, turns out to be quite difficult, and the the, uh, the paper that was published earlier this year by Chinese researchers that attempted to do just that um, on a discarded embryo, um, it, the the technique actually ended up failing. But what that showed the the world was that um, this technology is marching along at a much 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 more rapid pace. Uh, than we've seen with earlier technologies um, like, you know, basic recombinant DNA technologies. So it's this pace of research, the amount of um, funding that's being poured into it um, that is, you know, that really raises uh, the concern that we need to be having this public discussion now, not just amongst scientists, not even just amongst policymakers and scientists, but with, with the public as well. And the public needs to be informed um, about you know the promises of these technologies as well as uh, you know the, the the complications and the the, the consequences of, of our possible actions. When the techniques for recombinant DNA were introduced in the 1970s, this set up a moratorium on using the approach until rules had been put into place. There, there's been a similar call from leading biologists back in March over the use of the technology to alter the human germline for fear doctors may use it before its safety is understood and before the public can understand the ethical issues. In terms of the public discussion with regards to the use of the technology to alter human DNA, where are we in that discussion? Is it taking place? What restrictions, if any, have, have been put into place? Yeah. So as you said, there was a, a call by scientists uh, for a moratorium and the White House acted on that. Um, so, you know, that, so the use of, of, um, gene editing on human germline is you know, currently under moratorium in the U.S. Um, there's no such restriction, however, for, um, other, other living organisms. Um, so again, it's a, it's a, it's an area where, you know, we're learning about this technology, um, and its sort of perils and pitfalls through the lens of impacts on, um, on human, um, hum, the human genome and human, human evolution. Um, but we, we need to be simultaneously having that conversation about um, the, the possible consequences for, for ecosystems and for other, other populations, non-human populations. Well, the same way this technology promises to make breakthroughs in human health, there is enormous potential for using it to address serious environmental and, and other problems by altering microbes and plants and insects and other living things. How might this technology be enlisted to address a problem, say, like climate change? Yeah, so for instance, um, you know, we're learning more and more about the, um, the genes involved in how organisms adapt to challenging environmental conditions. Um, as a simple example, um, there are some species of salmon, uh, such as pink salmon, 
where uh, the timing of migration has a genetic component. Okay, and so the timing of migration in pink salmon is important for adaptation to global warming. If we could take genes for earlier migration from a more southerly population of pink salmon and move them into a more northern one, it could give that northern one a head start in adapting to those rapidly changing conditions. So that's sort of a simple example. Um, but, you know, there's, there's other ways in which we can think of how these, this technology could be used in, in uh, sort of a molecular CPR for imperiled species, um, for instance. Uh, there's a long-standing problem in endangered species of having too little genetic diversity. And um, there's, you know, questions about um, how, how to, how to um, impart more genetic diversity, in particular correct some of the uh, mutations that cause health problems in these very small bottlenecked populations. So the CRISPR-Cas9 technology could be one way to, um, to attempt to do that. Well, the concern you raise is that while there has been some discussion and warning alarms sounded about the use of the technology to alter human life, the ecological risk from such genetic manipulations are poorly understood and have been largely ignored. You suggest that this is a bigger threat. Can you explain? Yeah, so this really comes down to um, sort of the precautionary principle and our our um, our general uncertainty and, and ignorance about uh, ecological interactions. Um, we, we can't predict the e ecological outcomes of releasing um, transgenic in uh, insects into the wild. Um, we can't now, and, and we may never be able to fully predict those risks. Um, and, the, and here I'm talking about the combination of CRISPR with uh, gene drive, this uh, technique for ensuring that your modified gene gets carried forward in, uh, in, gen in the next generation. Um, so it essentially is like a chain reaction that ensures that that gene that, you, um, that, you're, uh, that you've modified is going to, um, is going to be carried forward. Um, so, you know, it, because of this clear potential for unintended consequences, um, many in the research community have called for urgent um, review and and uh, and regulatory oversight of these technologies that just haven't caught up yet to the um, to these challenges. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine is is working on a report on the non-human impact of aspects of this technology, which you mentioned is expected next spring. In the meantime, you call for actions now. You say first we should clarify who has jurisdiction over gene editing projects. Who has that authority today, and and why is it unclear if it's unclear? Yeah, so it has to do with um, again the fact that the regulations really just haven't caught up to the science in this case. Um, the the uh, the jurisdiction for um, genetically modified organisms is spread across several agencies, you know, and each have their own um, review processes. Each have their own areas of expertise. Um, and so having these, these, this sort of lack of clarity and these inconsistencies mean that um, some of these projects really f can fall through the cracks. Uh, and that's the case now going on with um, some agricultural pro uh, projects. So whereas um, there are you know, regulations about um, transgenic uh, crops um, as created through uh, traditional recombinant DNA technology, um, there are apparently enough sort of loopholes that um, those, those um, regulations do not seem to apply to um, CRISPR-edited agricultural products. 
so you know that's something that obviously needs to be looked at and um, and remedied quickly. Um, but in general, you know, I think for the sake of the public, for the sake of scientists, and for the sake of um, corporations and companies that are um, that are hoping to 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 use these technologies to you know to help the planet, um, there needs to be very very clear uh, jurisdiction over you know who who is regulating these uh, these these projects. You also say there needs to be studies funded on the potential impact of these technologies on the environment. Is anything being done to date, or is anyone stepping up to fund such studies? This is this is sort of the problem. Is there you know there's a tremendous amount of money flowing into um, the technology itself, uh, understandably because it's exciting, it's new, it has enormous um, potential for human health and and other applications. Um, but there is not a concomitant. Um, Amount of money flowing into uh, research on the risks. So you know, no nobody seems to want to fund uh, risk research. It doesn't doesn't sound sexy, and uh, it's not something that investors particularly like the sound of. Um, but you know, the fact is that we we desperately need it um, if we're going to actually try to evaluate these technologies. Uh, so so I'm I call for you know a. a Increase in funding from both our government agencies, uh, which I think have a big responsibility to um, to, to do that, but also the, um, the the foundations and companies that are that are investing um, so heavily in, in CRISPR as well. How do we get an intelligent public discussion about this technology that balances appropriate regulation while ensuring the benefits from the advances we made can be realized. Well, I think um, you know, it, it, like like any new um, scientific advance, um, education is is first, and trying to avoid um, fear mongering or um, just painting everything with one big brush. You know, clearly this is a, a complex landscape that we're headed into. Um, and many of these things are going to need to be, uh, many of these projects are going to need to be considered carefully on a case-by-case basis where we really are going to be able to weigh the benefits and the risks. Um, again, you know, pointing out how important it is that we have a clear understanding of those risks. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that conversation can't take place if we have uh, an uninformed or a misinformed uh, public. So, you know, the, the, my goal with the op-ed was to um, really raise awareness um, that this is a very rapidly moving um, technology, um, that scientists involved in it um, have very, very good intentions and want to uh, make sure that um, their, their actions don't have harmful, you know, unintended consequences. Um, so, you know, igniting that conversation um, and, and uh, making sure that everyone understands sort of the basics of the technology, I think it's the, the very first step. Elizabeth Alter, Assistant Professor of Biology at City University of New York's York College and author of the op-ed in the November 10th edition of the New York Times on the risk of assisting evolution. Liz, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me.
Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.